Well, after that, we expected a farcical trial in which father would be taken out and never returned. Instead, they merely called him in and bullied him and threatened him. And we realized then what we had half known all along. They were afraid of him. They recognized in him a strength they could not break, a spirit they could, get not, could not get their hands around. And above all things, they feared a mass rebellion because they knew that if father was maltreated, the whole camp of 4,000 men would mutiny. And so, on Easter Sunday, 1951, he hurled at them his boldest challenge, openly flouting their law against religious services. In the yard of a burnt-out church in the officer's compounds, just at sunrise, he read the Easter service. He could not celebrate the Easter Mass, for all of his Mass equipment had been lost. But he fashioned a cross out of two rough pieces of wood, and he read the Stations of the Cross to the Scarecrow men sitting on the rubbled steps of the burnt church. And he told the story of Christ suffering a death. And then, holding in his hands a rosary made of bent barbed wire cut from the prison fence, he recited the glorious mysteries of Christ, risen from the tomb and descended into heaven. My name is Joe Ferris, and I want to personally welcome you to the foxhole. In addition to the foxhole welcome, I want to welcome you to our Father Capen Comes Home series. I want to just say to you today uh, that you need to clear your environment, clear all the noise from around you, and go to a space where you can listen to this story today. Father Matt Pawlowski uh, is going to share a little bit of the story that really was a big deal in his life and a story he's told me several times he's going to share for the rest of his life with anyone who will listen. It's an eyewitness account by Mike Dow of his time with Father Capen in the prison of war camp. There's not many words I can say to add to the story except to ask you to plead with you this morning or this afternoon or whatever time you've downloaded the podcast to pay very close attention to the love this man had for Father Capen, but even more importantly, the love that Father Capen had for Jesus and the way he shared that love with the people around him, even his captors. So you are going to be blessed today. I was blessed by being a part of it, and I just encourage you to continue down this road of allowing the prayers of Father Capen to lead you closer to Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, we love you. I pray, God, for anyone who's downloaded the podcast, that today, Lord, their heart is opened and that you speak to them individually, Lord. Through the prayers of Father Capen, I ask for anyone who's suffering, who's sad, who's lonely, who's anxious, that you just give them Pray for some peace for them, Lord, in this moment, in this time in history. I ask all of these prayers to the sacred heart of Jesus and the immaculate heart of my mother Mary. As today we go into the story of Father Capen, Lord, let that story inspire us to be more, to be holy, to love you, Jesus, to allow you to love us and to share that love with everyone we encounter. Amen.
Father Matt Polakowski, welcome to the foxhole, my friend. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. It is great to have you back in the foxhole. You are a return guest, and you're also a recently retired colonel in the U.S. Army Chaplain Corps. Um, and I know we spoke to you a while back, but we've invited you to come back in, Father, um, for our Father Capen Comes Home series, mainly because <clears throat> of the unique way you retell Father Capen's story. And we thought this would be a, really bl- a real blessing for our audience to hear it from you directly. But before we do that, talk to me a little bit about how you're going to do it, the article you use, and what motivated you to, to really dive in so deeply into the story. Sure. Thank you. Uh, the... Um the article I use is written by Mike Dow, who's a West Point graduate class of 1950, who within months of graduating from here was then in combat in Korea and then became a prisoner of war for almost three years. Um, so uh, Mike met Father Capone in the prison camp and became friends with him. And when the prisoners were finally released at the ceasefire uh, in July of 1953, uh, one of the first things Mike wanted to do is he went to the Saturday Evening Post and found Harold Martin and uh, wrote this article so that people could know the story of Father Capone. So there's a lot of uh, sources on Father Capone. This is the one that I use to tell his story, uh, and it really focuses primarily on Father's experience in the prison camp. So Father was a, a Medal of Honor recipient for actions just before they were captured, but most of the story is going to be his actions in the prison camp. Well, without further ado, Father, for the sake of time and for the blessing of folks hearing these words um, retold, the story retold, I'm just going to step back and I'm going to ask you uh, to share with us the article and maybe share it in any way that you feel like you need to tell it. Sure. Thank you so much. All right. So um, uh, this is the ordeal of Chaplain Capone, written by Mike Dow, uh, told to Harold Martin of the Saturday Evening Post. He wore the cross of the chaplain branch instead of the crossed rifles of the infantry, but he was, I think, the best foot soldier I ever knew, and the bravest man, and the kindest. His name was Emil Joseph Capon, and he was a priest of the Roman Catholic Church. But the men he served in the prison camps of Korea, to all of them, Catholic, Protestant, and Jew alike, and to men who professed no formal faith at all, he was always simply father. And each of them, when trouble came, drew courage and hope and strength from him. He's dead now, murdered by the Red Chinese, and his body lies in an unmarked grave somewhere along the Yalu River. But the hundreds of men who knew and loved him have not forgotten him. And I write this so that the folks at home can know what kind of man he was and what he did for us and how he died. Now, the first thing I want to make clear is this. He was a priest of the church, and he was a man of great piety, but there was nothing soft or unctuous or holier than thou about him. He wore his piety in his heart, but outwardly he was all G.I., tough of body, rough of speech sometimes, full of the wry humor of the combat soldier. In a camp where men had to steal or starve, he was the most accomplished food thief of them all. And in a prison whose inmates hated their communist captors with bone-deep hate, he was the most unbending enemy of communism. And when they tried to brainwash him, he had the guts to tell them to their faces that they lied. He always spoke in phrases that even the most unlettered soldier could understand. 
for he himself was the son of a Kansas farmer, and he had a farmer's flair for down-to-earth, homey talk. In his religious services, which he doggedly held despite the threats of the Chinese communists, his brief sermons were deep, and every point he made struck home. Even the great mysteries of the Christian faith became clearer to us whenever he spoke of them. He always talked in parallels, relating the sufferings that Christ endured to those Christ endured to those that we were forced to bear. And as he spoke, the agony in the garden, the road to Calvary, the crucifixion, all became very real to us who ourselves lived daily under the threat of death and who bore our own crosses of blows and cold and illness and starvation. But Christ endured, he told us, and we too must endure. For the day of our resurrection from the tomb of this prison camp will surely come as surely as the stone was rolled away from the sepulcher. And because of these sermons, which gave us hope and courage, and because of the food and medicine that he stole for us, and because of the care he gave us when we were sick, many of us came back who never would have survived our long ordeal without him. He had become a legend among the troops long before the Chinese captured him, and he always stayed close to the fighting. Even before the blood had dried on the dusty slopes after the calf had taken a hill, he'd set up his altar on a litter stretched across two ammunition boxes. And there on the battlefield, with mortar fire coming in and the enemy massing in sight for a counterattack, he would hear confessions and celebrate the Mass and administer Holy Communion to men who, in another hour, would be in battle again. His parish was the front lines and the battalion aid station close behind those lines. There, he'd cheer and comfort the wounded all he could. He'd joke and kid with the lightly wounded. And over the dying men, whatever their faith, he'd say the last prayers of the church. He seemed to have no fear that he himself might be killed. Once, Father and another man from an, uh, another unit nearby went after and brought back a man wounded and exposed uh, so perilously that our Littermen could not get to them. They came back crawling and ducking from rock to rock through fire so thick that Father's pipe was shot out of his mouth. It was his devotion to the wounded which finally cost Father his freedom and ultimately his life. It was at Unsan on the 2nd of November in 1950. For 36 hours, the 8th Cavalry, fighting a perimeter defense, beat off a fanatical attack. Early in the morning, Hand-to-hand fighting swirled around the command post and in the aid station where the wounded lay. Finally, at dusk, the order came for every man who could still walk to try to break out through the surrounding enemy and make their way back to friendly lines to the south. Father was unwounded and might have escaped, but of his own free will he stayed on, helping take care of the wounded. And there, just at dark, the Chinese took him as he said the prayers of last rites over a dying man. I'll never forget the night that I finally met him. We were carrying wounded from another group on litters made out of straw sacks stretched across rough pine poles. And I was on the right-hand pole at the front. We carried it up on our shoulders. And when it started to ache too much, we'd stop and switch positions. Well, I noticed the man who was carrying behind me. And I put in my hand and said, I'm Mike Dow, I said. Capon, he said, putting out his hand. Father, I said, feeling as if I'd met an old friend. I've heard about you. And he smiled and dropped his voice and said, well, don't pass it along. 
because my bishop doesn't know I'm here, and if he finds out, he'll be angry. Well, it was a feeble joke, but at that moment he cheered us significantly. Hour after hour we stumbled on. Now, it was hard enough to walk by yourself, but carrying a litter was agony. Our officers and NCOs sometimes tried to order us to carry, but that never worked. Father, however, never ordered a man to carry. After arrest, he just called, Let's pick him up, boys. And all down the line, the guys would bend and lift and follow his example. For in the 60 to 80 miles that we were forced northward into our camp, I never once saw Father take a break from carrying somebody. Far in the night, we came to a village, and Father and Doc Anderson refused to leave the wounded. But the next morning, they came around and pulled all the officers out and put us together in a compound at the north end of the valley. Father squawked about being separated from his enlisted men, but the Chinese poked him with gun butts and made him move along. Now, in camp, the Chinese allowed us a food ration of 500 grams of millet, which is basically bird seed per day. It was a starvation ration to begin with, and then they cut it down to 450 grams. It was obvious, Father said, that we must steal food or starve. And so, standing before us all, he said a prayer to St. Dismas, the good thief, who was crucified at the right hand of Jesus, asking for his aid. I'll tell you, I'll never doubt the power of prayer again. Father, it seemed, could not fail. At the risk of being shot by the guards, he'd sneak at night into the little fields around the compound and prowl through shocked corn and find where the Koreans had hidden potatoes and grain beneath the corn shocks. He moved out of a crowded room where 19 of us slept spoon-fashion on the dirt floor in a desperate attempt to use our own body heat to keep us warm and alive in the freezing cold. He moved out of that situation to sleep alone in an open shed in the compound because he found that that shed backed up to a crib full of Korean corn, which he, saw, which he stole surreptitiously for us ear by ear. His riskiest thefts were carried out by daylight right under the noses of the Chinese. When men were called to make the ration run, father would slip in at the end of the line, and before the ration detail reached the supply shed, he'd slide off into the bushes, creeping and crawling, he'd come up behind the shed, and while the rest of us started a commotion with the guards or amongst ourselves, he'd sneak in, snatch up a sack of cracked corn, and scurry off into the bushes with it. There were other men stealing too, and some of them squirreled their stolen food away for themselves to be eaten later on. But father always tossed his into the common pot. He never said a word to the men who hid and hoarded food. But at night, after a successful foray, he'd say a prayer of thanks to God for providing food which all can equally share. Well, that seemed to shame the men that were privately hoarding, and soon it stopped. Father did have one great failure that had overtones of humor which served to relieve what at that moment was a dark tragedy. Once, a little black pig wandered into the compound, and men who had tasted no meat in months felt themselves drooling as father, a big rock in his hand, cautiously stalked the pig. And while dozens of silent prayers went up from all corners of the camp, he raised the stone high and he brought it down. It struck the pig, but it was only a glancing blow, and the pig set up a horrible squealing. The Chinese guard came running out of the shed, slamming a cartridge into his rifle and shouting, Huh? Huh? 
Father fled for the latrine, and the guard, confused, ran off in hot pursuit of the little black pig. Soon, our wounded in the sick house, and only the Chinese had the temerity to call it a hospital, our wounded began to die by the dozens, poisoned by their untended wounds. Finally, the Chinese allowed Doc Anderson to go to their aid, although at that point he had nothing but the skill of his hands to help them. Still, encouraged by this, Father asked permission to go along with the doctor. His permission was refused. What these men need is medicine, not prayer, the Chinese told him. Well, since they aren't getting any medicine, Father answered, a little prayer won't hurt. No, the Chinese said, you will not be permitted to spread your poisonous Christian propaganda here. So then began Father's most hazardous exploits. On days when there was a ration run, he'd stop and steal food at the warehouse. And then, with his pockets full of cracked corn, dodging the Chinese roving patrols that watched the trail that very well would have shot him for being out of the barracks at that time, he'd move on to the house where the wounded were. On days when there was no ration run, he would just sneak there, ducking under the bushes to keep out of the sight of the guards along the road. He scrounged cotton undershirts to make bandages. He took their old bandages, foul with corruption, and sneaked them out and washed them and sneaked them back in. He picked lice from their bodies, an invaluable service, because a man so weak that he cannot pick his own lice would soon die from the insects. He let men smoke his pipe, and he joked with them, and he said prayers for them, and he held them in his arms like children as delirium came upon them. But the main thing he did for them was to put into their hearts the will to live. For when you are wounded and sick and starving, it's easy to give up and just quietly die. Somehow, as it says in the New Testament, power went forth from him and healed them. <clears throat> in Father Capone's valley, the conditions were the same as in the camp known as Death Valley. But in Death Valley, the death rate was ten times higher, even though they received more food and medicine for cooperating with the communists. Still, even when men died, Father did not abandon them. Men dodged burial detail whenever they could, but Father always volunteered. And at the grave, as the earth covered the naked body, naked for the clothing of the dead was saved to warm the bodies of the living. Father would utter for them the last great plea, Eternal rest grant unto him, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon him. When he had done all he could at the house of the wounded, he would slip out to the houses where the enlisted men were kept. He would step in quickly and quietly, and then he would say a quick general service, beginning with a prayer for the men who had died in Korea, both in battle and in prison. And he'd pray for the sick and the wounded, and for the folks back home. And then he would say a prayer of thanks to God for the favors he had granted us, for the food and wood and water that we have received, even at the hands of our enemies. And then he'd speak, very briefly, a short, simple sermon, urging the men to hold on and not lose hope of freedom. And above all, he urged them not to fall for the lying doctrines the communists were trying to pound into our heads. Because to Father's stubborn faith, the man who bought communist teachings was selling his immortal soul. In his soiled and ragged fatigues, 
with his scraggly beard and a queer woolen cap made out of the sleeve of an old G.I. sweater pulled down over his ears. He looked like any other half-starved prisoner. But there was something in his voice and bearing that was different. Dignity. Composure. Serenity that radiated from him like light. Wherever he stood was holy ground and the spirit of Christ within him, the spirit of reverence and abiding faith, went out to the silent, listening men and gave them hope and courage and a sense of peace. By his very presence, somehow he could turn a stinking, louse-ridden mud hut into a cathedral. He did a thousand little things to keep us going. He gathered and washed the foul undergarments of the dead, and distributed them to men so weak from dysentery they could not move. And he washed and tended these men as if they were little babies. He traded his watch, a gift from his mother on his ordination day, for a blanket from the camp commander, who mocked him when he did it. Still, father took the mockery and took the blanket and cut it up to make warm socks for helpless men whose feet were freezing. With a sharp stick in his bare hands as his only tools, he cut steps in the steep, ice-covered path that led down to the stream so that men carrying water would not fall because in the men's weakened condition, even a bruise could become a deadly condition. The most dreaded housekeeping chore of all was cleaning the trains, and men argued bitterly over whose turn it was to carry out that loathsome task. And while they argued, Father slipped out the back door and just quietly did the job himself. In mid-January, in sub-zero cold, Father led scrounging parties out to prowl through ruins, to find nails and tin and broken boards, to patch the houses they were in and to make them somewhat livable. In the yard of the officer's compound, he built a little fireplace with bricks that he had stolen. On it, with wood that he had stolen. In fact, once the communists caught him stealing pickets from the fence and made him stand for hours stripped of his outer garments in the bitter cold, hoping the cold would kill him. With that wood... He would make a fire and heat water in pans made from tin that he had stolen and pound it into shape with a rock that he didn't have to steal. But every morning, he'd bring in this pan full of hot water, calling cheerfully, coffee, everybody, and pour a little bit into each man's cup. And though there was no coffee in it, somehow, this sip of hot water in the morning gave each man heart to rise and pick off his lice and choke down his bowl of soupy millet and face if not with cheerfulness, then at least without despair, another day of captivity and abuse. He was always telling us we'd, we'd soon be free, and he was always dreaming up fancy menus, ten-course meals we'd eat when we got home. All of us did it, but Father was the best at describing his mother's meals. Well, as weeks and months passed, robbed of all strength by pellagra and beriberi and other diseases, men grew weaker. The unbroken diet of millet and corn became nauseating. We could hardly choke it down. By mid-March, we were in such desperate condition that we were boiling green weeds in our hunt for vitamins. The hideous swelling of the body that is the first mark of approaching death by starvation was showing up on more and more of us. As our bodies weakened, the communists stepped at the pace of their propaganda assault upon our minds. Hour after hour, we sat in lectures while Comrade Sun, a fanatical little Chinese communist who hated Americans with an insane hatred, 
assailed our rotten capitalistic Wall Street civilization. And then we'd have to get up and comment upon the great truths revealed to us by Comrade Sun. A few bold men, in reckless despair, commented in unprintable words of contempt and were thrown into a freezing hole or subjected to other severe tortures, sometimes resulting in their death. Some would veil their ridicule and read, well, according to Lenin and Stalin and Abbott and Costello, and then go on to make fun of it. Father was neither openly arrogant, nor did he use subterfuge. Without ever losing his temper, he'd answer the lecturer point by point with a calm logic that set Comrade son screaming and leaping on the platform like an angry ape. Strangely, they never punished him except by threats and ominous warnings. Now, two officers who knew him well, they were taken away and tortured. With their hands tied behind them, they were lifted by ropes until their wrist joints pulled apart. They were then brought back to accuse father publicly. They charged him with slandering the Chinese, which was true, if you call telling the real truth about them slander, which the Chinese did. They said that father advocated resistance to the Red Study Program and that he displayed a hostile attitude toward his captors, that was also true. They said that he threatened them with courts martial if they went along with the Chinese, which was not true. Father never threatened anybody. In fact, when the two men came back to the barracks after their ordeal, quite unsure of their welcome by the rest of us, Father made sure that he was the first to greet them. And looking at their twisted, rope-burned hands, he told them, you never should have suffered a moment trying to protect me. Well, after that, we expected a farcical trial in which father would be taken out and never returned. Instead, they merely called him in and bullied him and threatened him. And we realized then what we had half known all along. They were afraid of him. They recognized in him a strength they could not break, a spirit they could, get, not, could not get their hands around. And above all things, they feared a mass rebellion because they knew that if father was maltreated, the whole camp of 4,000 men would mutiny. And so, on Easter Sunday, 1951, he hurled at them his boldest challenge, openly flouting their law against religious services. In the yard of a burnt-out church in the officer's compound, just at sunrise, he read the Easter service, he could not celebrate the Easter Mass, for all of his Mass equipment had been lost. But he fashioned a cross out of two rough pieces of wood, and he read the Stations of the Cross to the Scarecrow men sitting on the rubbled steps of the burnt church. And he told the story of Christ suffering a death, and then, holding in his hands a rosary made of bent barbed wire cut from the prison fence, he recited the glorious mysteries of Christ risen from the tomb and descended into heaven. As we watched him, it was clear to us that Father himself at last had begun to fail in strength. On the starvation diet we were allowed, a man could not miss a single day's meal. But for months, Father had been sharing his meager rations with sick and dying men. The week after Easter, he began to limp. And as he read the service for the Easter Sunday after Easter, as he reached the line of the epistle, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith, we caught him as he fell. Beneath his tattered uniform, his right leg was dreadfully swollen and discolored. For weeks, 
He had been suffering terrible bone aches, a byproduct of hunger, that came upon men at night with such fearful pain that they would scream and beat the ground in agony. Father, when awake, never even whimpered. When he slept, though, his iron will broke, and he would moan pitifully. His leg continued to swell until it was one great mass of purple, blue, and yellow flesh. The communist doctor, a brainwasher posing as a medical man, pronounced the usual diagnosis by which they sought to convince us, or at least convince themselves, that we truly were an evil, immoral, and decaying race. Father, he said blandly, has syphilis. Well, Doc Anderson knew it for what it was. It was a blood clot blocking circulation to the leg. And so, using the bricks from the fireplace that Father had built and boiled water to keep us healthy and happy, we warmed those bricks and applied hot, hot packs to his legs, and slowly the swelling began to subside. Soon Father could walk again, although he was so weak he would often fall. And then a fearful dysentery seized him, and as he had so often done for us, we cared for him as best we could, and he beat that and got on his feet again. And he arose, a walking ghost, to give the last sacrament to a dying man. And the next day, Father's eyes were bright with fever, and his breath came in a hoarse rattle. He had taken pneumonia, and soon was in delirium. Around him, there seemed to gather all the people he had known in his boyhood. Babbling happily, sometimes laughing, he spoke to his mother and his father, and to the priests he'd known in seminary. Even in his delirium, his unbreakable spirit manifested itself in sallies of humor. Finally, fearfully, he sank into a deep and quiet sleep. But then he awoke. He was completely rational. The crisis had passed. He was getting well. But the Chinese communists did not intend that he should live. Father was sitting up, eating and cracking jokes when the Chinese guards came with a litter to take him to the hospital. We knew, that, we knew then that he was doomed because the hospital was no hospital at all, but a death house. In the room in which he was to be placed, men were left to lie, untended, in filth and freezing cold until death mercifully took them. Our doctors protested violently against his being taken there, but the Chinese cursed them and forbade them to go along and care for him. The rest of us protested, but all they answered was, he goes, he goes. A commotion was breaking out between us and the Chinese guards, and Father sat up and begged us to stop, fearing that we would get injured defending him. He looked around the room at all of us standing there, and he smiled. He held in his hands the ciborium, the little covered cup in which long ago he had carried the bread of life. Tell them back home that I died a happy death, he said, and he smiled again. As they loaded him on the litter, he turned to Lieutenant Nardella. And he put a little book in Nardella's hands and he said, you know the prayers, Ralph. You keep holding services. Don't let them make you stop. And he turned to another officer have been having trouble back home. And he said, when you get back to Jersey, you get that marriage if you're straightened out. Or I'll come down from heaven and kick you in the tail. And then he turned to me. And he said, don't take it hard, Mike. 
I'm going where I've always wanted to go. When I get up there, I'll pray for all of you. Well, despite Father's directions, I stood there crying, unashamed. As they took him down the road. The little gold cup still shining in his hand. Beside me stood Fezi Gurkin, a Turkish lieutenant, a Muslim, who said, To Allah, who is my God, I will pray for him. And a few days later, he was dead. Not long afterward, the little daughter of the Chinese camp commander walked past the compound gate. She was tossing up and catching something that glittered in the sun. It was father's gold cup. And on the demands of the POWs, it was returned at Operation Big Switch, the prisoner exchange at the end of the war. And we brought it back to commemorate his deeds and the deeds of all who died at the hands of the communists. It was brought back to his hometown in Pilsen. It is now in Wichita, Kansas, at Capone High School. A year later, on the anniversary of his death, Ralph Nordella asked the communists for permission to hold a service in his memory. They refused. And you know what? I'm glad. I'm glad they refused. Because it told me that even though he was dead, his body lost forever in a mass grave, they were still afraid of him. They feared him because he was something they knew they could not kill. The unconquerable spirit of a free man, trusting in his country and owing his final allegiance only to his God, the God who sets men free. Thank you, God, for the gift of Father Capone. Amen. Uh, I have chills from the top of my head to the bottoms of my feet. Let's just let that sit for a second before you pray us out of here, Father Matt. Sure. Um, that is, I mean, that's powerful stuff. And straight from the words of someone who was there, straight from the mouth of someone who was there. Um, that's, that's intense. And a great so, story. Yeah. yeah. So Father Matt, thank you um, for sharing that with us and sharing it with our audience. A lot of folks have asked for specific details of his story. And I think that's a pretty powerful um story you just told us and, and, you know, again, an eyewitness account. So I would ask you uh, to pray us out of here. I want you to be assured of our prayers, especially in your retirement. Um, and, and know that Capen's men, uh, we appreciate all you're doing. Um, and we pray for you on a daily basis. And I ask you just to pray for those listening to the podcast right now and pray for those who will listen to the podcast. Sure. So we could just wrap this up in prayer. Almighty God, we are very grateful for giving us your servant, Father Imo Kapon, and for letting his story come to our attention to inspire us, but also so that we can come to know him and call upon him in prayer. We do pray, God, that you would raise him to the altar, that he would become known throughout the world as one of your great saints and one of your great servants. And I do ask your prayers, Father, for us and for this world, I pray that you would help us to resist the lies of communism and other systems that defy God and would exalt man over God. 
At this particular time in history, I, I do ask your prayers for our citizens in Afghanistan who are in danger and for other people that are in danger there uh, from other just terrible systems of thought and um, government and just a mess. But more than anything, Father, we ask you to pray for us that we would love God the way you loved him. That we would have real piety in our hearts and express it in the very particular details of our lives every single day. That we would wake up in the morning and get busy serving God and serving others. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Matt, for sharing that great story with us in such a dynamic way. Mike Dow's testimony is some of the greatest we have about Father Capon, and certainly was included in all the documents that we sent to Rome for his sainthood cause. The challenge for all of us listening is to share this podcast and this story with someone who needs to hear it. It's a story that deserves to be shared. And if you're one of the fortunate ones who heard this after someone else shared it with you, don't let it stop there. Let's keep the inspiration going. That's all we have today. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Foxhole. Until next time, stay humble and stay courageous, and may Father Capon pray for all of us. We can surely expect that in our own lives there will come a time when we must make a choice between being loyal to the true faith or of giving allegiance to something else which is either opposed to or not in alliance with our faith. O God, we ask of thee to give us the courage to be ever faithful to thee. Blessed are they who suffer persecution for justice sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of you. Amen.